0: Never suspect. He doesn't play for he <laughs> I'm
1: laughing play because of John Oliver's uh, famous remark that something, I can't remember what, was the most off-putting phrase in the English language except for featuring stings. Uh, but we are, we're not featuring Sting today, Sting is but a passing fancy for us. I'm also thinking that the last time I think that we talked about poker on this show at any length was like 10 years ago. And I had this young man on who had dropped out of college to become a professional poker player and I had been steered to him by his mother, who I retrospectively understood was so appalled by his decision to do this, that she thought that the interview, would you know basically explode this whole idea that he had about himself and and ultimately he got mad at me she got mad at me other people got mad at me everybody thought that I had handled this interview really badly but the thing that I really remember was what struck me was that it didn't seem like a crazy thing the more that he talked the more I thought well if you're good at this and you can win and you're young and you know I mean even if it's a mistake you can make a mistake right Uh, so anyway we're gonna talk about poker again And I am going to tell you right now. Well, actually, let's get our guest involved here. Maria Konnikova, who's been on the show many times to talk about many things, uh, and, and to a certain extent to talk about cards, too, because uh, for her book about con artists, we even paired her up with a guy named Fast Jack, who's no, no longer with us, but who had been uh, a card and dice hustler. Um, so Maria Konnikova is back with more cards. She is back specifically with a, a book called The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself and Win. She's a regular contributing writer to The New Yorker, writes for other publications We've had a lot of fun with her on our show over the years. so And we've been waiting for, I think we've mentioned this upcoming book maybe, you know, four or five times during previous appearances. So it's very exciting. The book is here, and so is Maria. Welcome back, Maria
0: Konnikova. Thank you so much for having much. So... Um, you know, you've
1: probably been interviewed. Oh, no, I'm not probably. I checked. You've been interviewed by various people in connection with this book who know a lot or think that they know a lot about poker and probably are trying to impress you a little bit with how much they know about poker. That will not be happening in this interview. Um, I, I have one edge on you, which is that going in, I knew that there were 52 cards uh, in a deck, which, as we'll get to uh, for a time, you did not know. But I don't know how to play poker. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, even after reading the book, I know there are things like a nut flush, which actually sounds like something that you know, would be a plumbing problem. But um, uh, but I don't really understand all that stuff very well. I don't really know the rules. Um, but the one thing that I do know is that there are only two ways to win at poker. Right. You either have to have the best cards or you have to persuade the person who does have the best cards to drop out. It would be like in basketball if the Knicks had two options to score the most points or somehow convince the Lakers that they had not scored the most points and that they should quit, which is sort of not an an option. So... This seems to be a lot of what attracted you to this, right? That this is a game of both chance and luck. It's a game of both knowns and unknowns. But, but maybe just say why it is you decided to do this thing. And we say this thing. This is basically devote your life to this for quite some time.
0: Sure. I started out not knowing anything about poker, I'm so sorry. I know we're live, but I don't know if you're getting a huge echo. Are you getting an echo? Yeah, I I wasn't before, but it's really hard for me to talk and hear myself. Oh, there we go. It went away.
1: It went away beautiful okay. thank
0: you <laughs> wonderful
1: now you so as, like as you
0: said um i i didn't know how many cards were in a deck i really knew nothing about the game what i did know was that i wanted to write about luck mm. and about the role that chance plays in our lives and how we can learn to tell the difference between the things that we do control um and the things that we don't control the things that are just outside us and the reason i i became fascinated by these questions i mean they're questions that had always interested me for for many years But I had a run of bad luck in my own life. And it really made me realize how much we take for granted and how often when we're lucky, we just forget that we're lucky. And we think, yep, everything is wonderful. Everything is going well. I'm, I'm doing well, all good here. It takes bad luck to act as a sort of wake up call to realize that control is actually limited agency is actually limited sure you know you make decisions you you work hard you do you but things also have to go your way and i really wanted to figure out how do i write about this and i started reading reading is always my first step in writing and someone had suggested i read up on game theory they said if you're interested in chance game theory offers a really wonderful framework for this and so I picked up John von Neumann's theory of games and I learned that von Neumann who's one of the polymaths of the 20th century not just the father of game theory but the father of the computer um, one of the people who worked on the hydrogen bomb just this brilliant mind that he was a poker player and that game theory was actually born of poker and something that you said a few minutes ago is one of the key things that intrigued me he said poker is the perfect game to simulate strategic decision making in life because it's a game of incomplete information just like life you can never know everything there are things i know things you know things we both know but we always have to make a decision probabilistically with all the information we have to the best of our abilities but knowing that there's no such thing as 100 percent certainty knowing that there's going to be these unknowns, there's going to be this chance element, and that we can make the best decision possible, but that doesn't mean we're going to win, that doesn't mean we're going to get the outcome we want, because variance is real. All we can do is put ourselves in a position to win, put ourselves in a position to be lucky, and afterwards the the cards will fall the way they will. And I thought this is so interesting. I want to learn more about poker. I started reading about poker and just something clicked in my mind. I thought this, why don't I learn how to play poker and use that journey as a way of exploring these themes that have preoccupied my mind.
1: Just as a little piece of trivia... Um, I'm pretty sure von Neumann, Einstein, and Kurt Gödel were all on the Princeton campus at the same time for a very, very brief period in one year, but they're all working at Princeton. I don't think they got together and played poker but or did, did anything, but it's kind of an amazing collection of people. And the John, John Forbes Dash, he of a beautiful mind, also very interested in <laughs> poker, not at the level of von Neumann, but, but – um, did do some work in poker and game theory and stuff like that. Uh, I think he and Brian some and, of
0: them, by yeah. the way. Speaking of trivia, yeah. some of them did play poker together. Um, <laughs> I was fortunate to see some photographs from Freeman Dyson's collection of some poker games that happened during the time, and I'm fairly certain that Einstein at least had played with von Neumann.
1: <laughs> okay, that's a pretty amazing game right there. So, I, as long as we're talking about that, there's sort of a division I think uh, that I, I derive from your book in the world of poker these days and you could sort of say it's a, it's a division between quants you know people who basically do think ultimately poker can be solved solved mathematically the way other games have been solved often by using supercomputers and and you know multiple simulations and stuff like that that you can just get more and more mathematical information and create an advantage and the humanists who still insist that no no the you know the human element of poker is is still one of the real keys to it and and you kind of came down on that other side right not that the quantitative information isn't important of course it is but that that you kind of sided with and took for a mentor somebody who believed that knowing about other human beings who are playing the game with you uh is important too
0: Yes, um, and that was a very strategic choice on my part. I was entering a new world that I knew nothing about, and I wanted to ramp up and become proficient. At least, I mean, I had I had no, I had no knowledge of whether or not I'd ever be good, but I at least wanted to give myself a fighting chance. And so, given that I was giving myself a limited amount of time, I wanted to make sure that I was leveraging my mind, my skills, what I brought to the table to the best of my abilities. My last math class was in high school. That was not going to be me. I knew right away that I wasn't going to be competing with the quants on their playing field just because I can't. Um, And I wouldn't be able to ramp up as quickly if that had been the foremost thing on my mind. But what i do have is a phd in psychology i studied risky decision making decision making under conditions of uncertainty i studied self-control and hot emotional decision making things that seemed like they'd be incredibly relevant at the poker table as i started learning about the game and so i've i thought i need to approach it from an area of strength sure i'll plug my weaknesses later i'm going to focus on the math i'll figure it out and i did months later, I I worked with some of these quant people and I downloaded the, you know, the solvers and I ran the simulations and I, and I did do that as well, but I wanted to start with what I was good at. And I picked a coach accordingly. I wanted someone who had that approach, who had that theoretical understanding, someone who was on my wavelength when it came to the priority of people.
1: Right. So, uh, you know, I think one thing that we might have a little bit in common is uh, there's a vast number of things that I don't know anything about, except that I've seen a movie about it. Um, <laughs> and so uh, when we talk about your coach, one of the inspirations for picking your coach is we'll play a little clip from the movie Rounders. i laying
0: this down, Teddy. Top two pair. It's a monster hand. I'm going to lay that down because you got two four and I'm not going to draw against a maid hand. Lays down a monster. Should have paid me off on that. The did you lay that down? Not hungry?
1: Mr. Sun...
0: Let's play some cards. The rule is this. You spot a man's tell. You don't say a word. I finally spotted KGBs, and usually I'd have let him go on chewing those Oreos till he was dead broke. But I don't have that kind of time. I've only got till morning. Not even Teddy KGBs immune to getting a little rattled.
1: All right. That's, of course, Matt Damon and in one of his many, many very sympathetic roles, uh, John Malkovich uh, as Eddie KGB. So that's a little bit based on the man you chose as your mentor, correct?
0: Yes. I'm getting the echo again.
1: Oh, no. It's, it, it's, it's a Skype thing. And if you want uh, during, during the break, we can switch to Zoom or something like that. If In fact, if you want. If you're getting the echo again, it's probably also because we're, we're coming out of a stop, uh, a little stop in the action. Talk a little bit more. If you're still getting the echo, what we'll do is we'll go to a break and we'll switch to Zoom. Uh, okay, sounds are good. You, are you still getting an echo?
0: I am still getting
1: all right. So what we're going to do, rather than break Maria's mind by having her try to <laughs> listen to herself talk and talk at the same time, let's um, take a little break. Uh, we're talking to Maria Konnikova. Her book is The Biggest Bluff. We'll take that break and we will switch uh, to uh, Zoom. So, Maria, I think you have to connect to us uh, I will. by Zoom. All right. We're going to do this.
0: All right. Know when to walk away, and Know when to run. You never count your money. Sitting at the table, there'll be time enough for counting when the dealing's done. Every gambler knows that the secret to surviving is knowing what.
1: All right, we are back, and hopefully we are back. You, you, you could just get it's such a fourth-wall moment. You got to hear us entirely switch technologies uh, here. Maria Konakova is with us. Uh, her new book is The Biggest Bluff. Uh, it is a book about her experiences, and I should say, that you get compared, Maria, sometimes to George Plimpton. And I think that's wrong because George Plimpton famously would, you know, he'd show up and he'd pitch an inning or something, you know, he'd go to spring training, pitch an inning, uh, professional baseball, or he'd kick a field goal for the Lions. And then he'd go back just to being, you know, a writer and stuff. You didn't do that. You went in as a journalist. You came out as a, as a successful professional poker player, correct?
0: This is true, and this is definitely not something that I ever could have predicted would happen. Um, it was not planned out if you had told me five years ago that this would that this is how it would take place. I, I would just laugh at you and say, no, that's impossible. I don't know what poker is. I hate casinos. Ain't
1: happening. <laughs> so we, we played that clip before and the echo started up again. Yes. So I should let you say a little something about uh, the man that you did choose. <laughs> and And not just choose. It's not as though you got to point to somebody and you would have them. You also had to convince this man, one of the real eminences of competitive poker playing, that you were worth his time.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I I love Rounders. Rounders was actually the only poker game I'd ever seen in my life before entering the world of poker. And in Rounders, there's a clip from the World Series of Poker from 1988 that they play over and over and the Matt Damon character obsesses over it. And it's Johnny Chan versus Eric Seidel. And Eric Seidel at the time is this 20-something kid. And it's his first major tournament. And it's the main event of the World Series, which is the event in the in the world when it comes to poker. It's the one that every single person looks forward to every single year. It's the single most prestigious title. And Eric Seidel ended up coming in second. For people who don't quite remember, you probably remember the orange visor that he was wearing. That visor has seared many eyeballs and uh, unfortunately has been lost to history. But when I wanted to figure out, okay, who's going to coach me? I actually... Did a lot of research, and Eric's name kept popping up over and over, both because he was at the time number one in all-time tournament earnings, so I knew he must be good. And also, he's someone who was consistently good. Most people are good for a short period of time and then disappear. Like Johnny Chan, the other guy in Rounders, who who beat Eric and came in first. No one's heard of him for years. The guy hasn't done anything on the tournament scene. He just... He had a moment of glory and then he faded away. Eric Seidel kept crushing and crushing and crushing. And I thought, wow, there's there's something there. And then when I found out that he was also the guy in Rounders, that was just the cherry on top. And so I really decided to put together a game plan. How do I convince this guy that this would be a good investment of his time? How do I convince him to take me on?
1: And, and I think part of the convincing process was that to a certain extent, you're both kind of polymaths. Like if you had tried to convince him just on the basis of poker, you wouldn't have gotten anywhere because you at that moment were kind of an ignoramus about poker. Uh, But you convinced him, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, that you're a learner, that you're somebody who likes to learn, has almost an irresistible impulse to learn more about things.
0: You're not wrong. You're not wrong. And in fact, had I been a poker player, he would have said no, flat out. Eric Seidel had never taken a poker student in his life because that's just not what he does. He doesn't really care about it. But he was intrigued by the fact that I am a learner and that I came from a totally different area, that I came from psychology, that I came from writing, from journalism. And he thought, huh interesting clearly she's she's actually interested in the game not in having me you know teach her a little bit more strategy so that she can make more money and eric loves the game he loves the game for itself he's not in it to make money he ends up making money because he's good he's in it to learn about the process to make the best decisions possible for him that's the point of poker and that's i think what he instilled in me as well but when he saw me he said this is an opportunity for me to do two things One, it's a kind of test of philosophy. We started off the show, you had pointed out this tension between the mathematical and the psychological that's really come to a head in recent years. And so in me, I think Eric saw a test for the psychological. He thought, can this person who has never played before and whose background is psychology, can she succeed with hard work and with good thinking? Can that approach still make her do well it would be such a test of philosophy of life philosophy of game philosophy for him and so I think that that was a huge challenge and the second part of it was he loves poker and I think he saw in me an opportunity to spread love of the game beyond the poker community I think he liked that I had nothing to do with poker that I was a writer that the people who read my writing weren't poker players he thought if I can get this person to love the game and to care about it and to understand it, then maybe she'll bring more people to the game and maybe she'll allow people to see the beauty of the game as opposed to say, Oh, poker, you know, casinos gambling. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So, you know, we talked, uh, as you say, about the dichotomy between uh, the quants and what I would call, anyway, the humanists. Um, there's also, like, another element here that's it's almost closer to philosophy. And, and it's also a little bit closer to religious disciplines like Zen Buddhism. I'm, I'm, Buddhism. And I'm thinking about that whole idea of being present, that this is something that Eric is very much emphasizing with you. The, the notion of being present, and, and it m- involves so many different things. But I think to in, to to illustrate it, I'm going to have you tell one story from the book, not about you, not about Eric, but by another uh, about another player who's known as Lucky Chewy. You think because because of his resemblance to Chewbacca, that turns out, although he does resemble Chewbacca uh, in terms of grooming choices, uh, that's not why he's called that. It has to do with a candy or something that he used to eat. But tell the story about watching him play. I think Edward and Bob and and. and what he what decision he makes
0: it's one of the most memorable moments to me and i love that people are drawn to chewy because chewy i mean part of it has to be the name right Right. that was one of the reasons you were fascinated with chewy (laughs) it was one of the reasons that i was fascinated by him and yes i thought that it was chewbacca because he had long reddish hair a huge reddish beard Um, and i actually asked him are you Chewbacca? And he said, no, it's because of Chewy Bars. And I was very disappointed. But he's the only one who's gonna have his real name in this story because the other people don't come off nearly as well. It was a super high roller event. The buy-in for the event was $25,000. Eric was playing and he had told me to pay attention. Those are those are the two words that he kept repeating to me over and over and over. Pay attention. He said, pay attention to Chewy and to the other players and spot the difference. By the way, Chewy ha- does have a real name. It's Andrew Lichtenberger. He's a brilliant player. Um, and he said, pay attention to him and spot. See what he does that no one else is doing. And at first I thought it was very funny that he that he asked me this because I thought, well, this is a $25,000 event. These are the best players in the world. Of course, everyone's going to be paying attention. Of course, everyone's going to be taking notes and being very careful. No, that wasn't actually the case. Chewy was a contrast to every person there. He didn't have a phone out. He wasn't looking at anything other than at the players. He was just the embodiment of Zen of poise, of absolute attention. Whenever he wasn't in a hand, he was following the action. He was taking it in. You could see that he was making notes all the time. He just had this calm presence. Everyone else, they were talking about the sports scores because they had bets on sports. There was Edward, which is not actually his name. So apologies to all poker players named Edward, who was on his phone looking at Twitter. There was Bob, a recreational player um, who was a very successful businessman who was also at the table who was playing his game having a nice time and all three of them found themselves in a hand together and it turns out so I I obviously had no idea what cards anyone had but it turns out that Chewy had flopped top pair which is a very very strong hand it means that you have the top card that's on the board and you've paired it. And normally that's great. You're not going anywhere. You're not going to be folding. Everything's going to be totally fine. And then he saw that Bob had checked, that Edward had bet, that Bob had called. He saw all of this action and he just threw it away. He threw away such a strong hand and he kept watching and he kept watching the entire hand. And at the end of it, Bob ended up knocking Edward out of the tournament. And I think this is illustrative also because Edward is a math whiz. He's someone who had that very highly mathematical approach. And Edward had decided that this was going to be the perfect opportunity to execute a very complex bluff. Chewie, however, had been observing the people and he'd realized that the way that Bob played this hand meant that Bob had a monster, that even a strong hand wasn't strong anymore. It's like that clip you played from Rounders Mm -hmm. where Matt Damon is able to give up top two pair, which is a monster because he knows that Teddy KGB has an even stronger hand. And Chewie was able to see that, and Edward did not, because Edward had not only not been paying attention, but had this game plan that he'd already run through in his mind. He would decided beforehand what he was going to do based on the cards, the frequencies, the probabilities, the way that he'd run out the simulation. The funny thing is, um, a few months ago, before my book came out, I sent the chewy part of it to chewy because I wanted everyone to have a chance to see how they were going to be depicted. And he remembered the hand years Mm -hmm. later. He remembered exactly what the board was. He remembered everything about it. He knew who I was talking about. That's crazy. That's Mm -hmm. how much he was paying attention.
1: So, just uh, also just to kind of maybe help the the less uh, experienced listener on this. So, one of the things that Chewy had noticed was that this guy Bob, he, he he didn't bet up when he had a great hand. Instead, he would simply call. Right, he would check. He would uh, he would let the game come to him. That mm-hmm. in fact, the less aggressive he was, short of folding that was often a sign of a stronger hand. He was doing something kind of counterintuitive instead of betting up uh, when he had a strong hand. He'd noticed that about him. and, uh, And so Bob's behavior... Uh, of that kind worried him. It made him think, oh, no, Bob. Bob has strength and he's concealing it. And I know this because I've been very, very quietly watching it, but intently watching him. That's how he does this. So there's a lot of different lessons in there. One of them is the one that we just said, right, which is that, you know, you got to watch. you got to see who the person is. They say you don't play the game. You don't play the cards. You play the man, which we can use as a gendered term because (laughs) 97% of the (laughs) professional poker players are, are men. So there's that. But there's also another thing that comes up very early in your book and it's from another poker jedi that you get sent to named dan who says losing is important so what Chewie does there is it's doesn't it's not a great story in the sense of oh he won the hand he took the big pot it's the opposite he threw in his cards when another person might have kept going and so i you know, theoretically, I mean, we don't equate that with winning anyway. I don't know if it's exactly losing, but this is something that you're taught early, right? That this kind of decision is one of the markers of an effective poker player.
0: Yes, yes. So there there are two things going on here. So Chewy, you're right that this wasn't losing. This was learning how to fold strength. And oftentimes it's the things that will separate the brilliant strong players from the weaker players are their ability to fold to walk away to let go to say you know what I might be strong but I I'm willing to give this up because this is not there's something not right here so many players when they finally have a strong hand they can't do it they can't let go they just they they get too committed to what they're doing they get too caught up in the action and they don't know the art of walking away. So I think that's that's the first part of it. The second part of it is what Dan Harrington was trying to teach me when I started complaining to him. So Dan Harrington is one of the greats of the poker world, was one of Eric's original mentors, and has since retired from poker. And I was meeting with him early on in my adventure, And I complained to him that I wasn't doing well, that I was losing money. And he said, good. And I was very, very surprised at this. I thought, well, how is this good? I'm clearly very bad at poker. This is awful. And he told me that you can only become a winner. You can only learn to play good poker if you learn how to lose and if you lose to begin with, if you're winning, especially if you're winning at the beginning, How in the world are you going to know whether you just got lucky or whether you're good, whether chance was on your side or you made the right decision? You're not, because first of all, you're not going to be motivated to ask the question. You're just going to say, yeah, I'm naturally talented at this. This is amazing. And secondly, you don't even have the tool set to ask that question. You can't really go back through your thought process because it's too early on and you don't really, and and everything went well. So how are you even going to begin to... Parse what happened and whether or not it was luck or skill. If you fail, if you get unlucky, if you're losing, all of a sudden you're motivated to learn. You're motivated to go back through your decision process and to go step by step and think where did I go wrong or did I go wrong? What do I need to change? What do I need to work on? How do I play well even when I'm losing? Because it also forces you to learn an emotional maturity that you don't have to exhibit if you're winning. Life's good if you're winning, you don't have to control your emotions, you don't have to control how you respond to loss because you're winning, you're doing well. Losing forces you to actually exercise those muscles much earlier and that's going to serve you so well throughout any journey, be it poker or or life. And to me, it was just a profound lesson, not just in poker, but in learning to lose in life and just how important it is to fail gracefully and to use failure as an opportunity to examine your thought process and to become, emerge on the other side, a stronger person and a better decision maker.
1: So it turns out Elizabeth Bishop was wrong. The art of losing
0: is hard to master.
1: Um, <laughs> So, um, you know, having followed your work, having had you uh, uh, drangooned you into being a guest on many of our shows, I know that, you know, all, a lot of your background is in the area of cognitive biases uh, and in in things that we don't consciously process, the ways that our behavior is affected. And so, so much of this book is basically about you trying to master your cognitive biases, you trying to bring subconscious inclinations into your conscious mind so they don't lead you astray, and 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 that all kind of connects to what you were just saying, right? And maybe we could just talk about a cognitive bias example. It's something that was part of your own early research, which is people can persuade themselves that they are good at guessing the outcome of a coin flip. I mean, a coin flip is kind of like a cliche or a trope for the the most random thing in the world, but people because of cognitive biases and under certain circumstances can think that they're good at it. And you are one of the people who've
0: proven that, right? Yes. (laughs) I I hope so. (laughs) I don't know if I, can you ever really prove it? That's the thing. (laughs) I feel like it's something that, that you keep working on, but yes, poker, poker is definitely a way that all of these things that I'd worked on all of these things that I'd studied theoretically All of these biases that I knew about, it was a way to not just test them out, but learn to overcome them because there's money on the table. And you think very differently when there's actually a financial outcome at stake. It forces you to be much more self aware if you want to improve, it forces you to figure out what you're actually in control of and what you're not. It forces you to account for things like the illusion of control, feeling like you're in control when you're actually not. Because if you're under the illusion that you're controlling things you're not controlling, you're not going to be making very good decisions. I mean, if you think, I've heard some poker players say this, and it just drives me up the wall. You know, oh, I, I I made this decision because I knew the, the ace was coming. I knew that card was coming. And I want to say, no, you didn't. <laughs> You, you you had no idea. You didn't know. Um, you you do not have foresight. I've heard players say, you know, I think I'm a little psychic, and they say it seriously, and the, and they mean it. And it's just mind boggling to me. And I think that it was the fact that I had the cognitive toolkit. The words with which to describe these biases and then was able to work through them at the poker table with that metacognitive awareness, I think it made me much better able to crack the code on a lot of these things. But I do think it's a constant struggle. I do think a lot of these subconscious biases will remain even if you do the work to bring them to the forefront because it's hard. It's always effortful. And sometimes you forget And sometimes they pop up and you aren't paying attention, you get tired, you're exhausted, you've been making decisions all day, you're just thinking about something else, you're overwhelmed, your attention is elsewhere. And so that's why I said, do we ever, that's why I started this answer by saying, do we ever really solve it? And I think Mm -hmm. it's a constant work in progress and we need to be aware of that. And we need to be okay with the fact that sometimes we're going to make mistakes. We need to learn not to beat ourselves up and to say, OK, you know, I'm going to I'll move on and and try not to do that next time.
1: Yeah, some of it. I, I think one of the shows that we had you on, we did an entire show about overconfidence, sometimes known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. And I think it's Daniel Kahneman who says that's the most ineradicable human cognitive bias that you almost couldn't get a human being to completely drive this out. There just our situations where we think we know something that we don't know, or that we're better at something than than we are. That we're going to master a situation that we are in fact not going to be able to master. So you know, a lot of this book is you struggling with that and usually getting the better of it, but not always because yeah, you're not always. <laughs> you're human too. So we're going to take a break here. I just do want to say I, I I'm trying not to have too many spoilers here because there are some pretty dramatic moments in this book. We should say that as far as I'm concerned, this is Maria Konnikova going from potential Bond girl to Bond. She uh, (laughs) plays poker in Macau and Monte Carlo and the Bahamas and she wins big amounts of money. And so it's there's a lot of uh, she becomes even more of an international woman of mystery uh, than she has previously been. Uh, And I'm I'm hoping people will get excited about this book, uh, The Biggest Bluff. When we come back, because, in fact, the on ramp here was that poker might conceivably train somebody's mind to understand life better, to understand the role of chance, to understand the role of agency. Uh, I'm going to talk through with Maria some ways in which maybe poker uh, would help her think more clearly about other stuff. All right, this show is racing by, as I suspected it would, our guest is Maria Konnikova. Uh, Her book is The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. Uh, She's, actually, that's not her only book, but that's the book we're talking about today. Uh, I have to thank Kat Pastor, who's there in the studio. Did you see that? We switched from... Skype to Zoom. This is, You have to have a cat pastor to be able to do something like that. And you have to have a great senior producer like Betsy Kaplan in order to set up a show like this. So uh, I'm lucky all around tomorrow. We'll be back with the nose where we talk about a popular culture. We're debating topics right now. We've all seen this movie starring Pete Davidson called The King of Staten Island. That will be at least part of the menu. So Maria, in the limited time we have, I'd like just to try to run you through a few things and just kind of get you to talk about them in terms of what you've learned. They're all going to be very familiar to you. And one of them is one that you bring up in the book. So... Nate Silver was at one point early in his life a professional online poker player uh, and he of course uh, transformed himself into kind of the master of quantitative journalism the founder of 538. Uh, and he came under quite a lot of criticism as you point out in the book after the results of the 2016 election because so many people because of his uncanny ability in previous elections sometimes even to predict like every senate race correctly and things like that people thought that he had badly, badly misled his public by saying that Hillary Clinton had, I think it was a 71% chance of winning the election. So, so talk about that a little bit. I mean, in some ways, this is a question of, are you, are you a, a, a brilliant probabilistic thinker Or are you a journalist who's communicating information to the public? Because there's a little bit of push and pull between those two things, don't
0: you think? I do think because the public is really, 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 really bad at statistics. That's more really than you probably wanted to hear. But I want to stress this point. Our brains are so bad at probabilities. We want certainty. We do not like uncertainty. And it's really difficult for the brain to understand probability. That's one of the reasons I think that poker is such a wonderful teaching tool because it teaches you probabilities. And I think that Nate became such a brilliant statistical mind because of poker or at least the two things are related. And so the human mind sees 71% and thinks, oh yeah, Clinton's winning. Nate Silver had Trump at 29% to win. That's a lot. 29% is a lot. It is so far from zero. It's not even funny. So he wasn't wrong at all. 71% is not 100%. 75% is not 100%. We need to understand that. And people don't want to. And it's been a constant struggle, both for people like Nate and also for psychologists. How do we communicate risk to the public in a way that they'll understand? And it's a question that's still being debated because it's so incredibly difficult. And people just balk. They want they want to say, okay, who's winning? Okay, what's, what's happening? It's like getting mad at weather.com because you look at it and it says 85% sun, right? 15% chance of rain. And you say, oh, perfect. I'm not bringing an umbrella. And then it rains and you say, damn you, weather.com. How in the world could you have been so wrong? Well, it didn't say 0% chance. And then Sometimes you bring an umbrella because it's a 75% chance of rain and then you think, why did I lug this thing around all day? It didn't rain. Stupidweather.com. No, it's, it's probabilistic. The world is probabilistic. There's no such thing as certainty because we live in a game of incomplete information. That is what the world is. And Poker forces you to understand that. Poker players knew that the chance that Nate Silver had assigned to Trump winning is equal to the chance of flopping a pair in Hold'em. So that means that pairing one of the two cards that you're holding on, on the board, and that happens all the time. So if you experience that, you know, oh, that's definitely not 0%. There's a very good chance that Donald Trump is going to win.
1: Right. And I really want to have a conversation about this, but I also time is limited. I would first of all say I agree with everything that you just said, although I also think that, you know, as a journalist, Nate Silver is still sort of a poker player in the sense that, you know, he looks at the table and sees what's on the table. Other journalists who have often had little feuds with Nate, you know, say, well, no, part of the journalist's job is to figure out other stuff, stuff that's just not anywhere on that statistical picture. There were things that you one could have known about the 2016 election uh, that, that would have helped you understand it, it better. And so there kind of needs to be multiple kinds of journalism. But since you use the phrase communicating risk, communicating risk to the public, it's a beautiful transition to where I want to go next. So let's listen to Anthony Fauci yesterday talking to Mary Louise Kelly. One of the things that has actually happened was a realization that we have such a high percentage of people who are asymptomatic and who we know can spread the infection. And that was one of the major driving forces of getting people to say, wait a minute, we have a different situation now. We have people who may not even know they're infected and are inadvertently infecting others. Those are the ones that we want to have masks on, and we know it can protect the others who are on the other side of that mask. It isn't 100% protection by any means, but certainly the amount that you get is worth wearing it. So I I have two Konikovian reactions to that, but do you you want me to throw them at you or do you want to just react how you want to react?
0: No, go ahead. Throw them at me. Okay, I can react to your reactions.
1: (laughs) Okay, the first one I hear is, is Fauci actually saying in a way that this is a disease with whole cards, right? That, you know, unlike the zombie apocalypse or smallpox or whatever diseases where people show up sick, you know that person is sick, you can see that they're sick, and so you deal with with them. This is a disease that has whole cards, face-down cards, uh, and those are asymptomatic carriers. And that, he is saying, changed all kinds of things about what needed to be communicated about the disease. But you're the poker player, you talk about the whole cards.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think what he's saying is that this is absolutely not just a game of incomplete information because we don't there's so many things that we don't know that we're learning as we go and the the landscape is shifting, but there's hidden information and there are things that you don't know both about others and about yourself, I think that's crucial. So many people will listen to him and say, oh, well, that's other people. There's no way I have it. Well, asymptomatic means you don't know if you have it either. And so, yeah, all of the risk calculus has to change because the number of unknowns changes. It's a game of incomplete information where the information that's not available has just grown, has just gone up. We've actually learned something that makes us more scared because we've learned that there are more variables that we can't see that are much more difficult to grasp and i think that i think that fauci is facing an uphill battle here because their communication strategy was so flawed at the beginning and he knows this and so right now he's trying to walk it back and to tell people that you really need to wear masks and it's a very difficult balance to strike because risk communication is so hard and they already got it wrong once. So, so I think that he's, he's doing his best, but um, he's, he's fighting a, a very difficult battle, especially because once again, the human mind does not want to think that way and doesn't want to look at risks that way. And we don't want to believe that there are things that we don't know. I think we like feeling that we are more in control than we actually are.
1: So the second Konikovian thing that I heard there had to do with the masks themselves, where what he's saying is, and we're sort of back to Nate Silver again. He's he's not saying that if you wear a mask, you won't get the disease or that you wear a mask, you won't transmit the disease. He's talking once again, probabilistically. He's talking about a stronger hand versus a weaker hand, I guess you might say in poker terms.
0: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And he's also talking about making yourself the favorite. What a poker player can do is gain an edge, put yourself in a position to win, put yourself in a position where you're in the 75% to win. And yes, that 25% is going to happen. You won't always win. But what you want to do is make the best decisions you can to put yourself on the side Of the distribution that's going to win more often than not. And so that's what you have to do. That's what wearing a mask does. It puts you on the winning side. It gives you an edge over the disease. Does an edge mean 100%? No, nothing is 100%. We're going to stress this over and over and over. 100% does not exist. But what you can do is put yourself in a position to win and If you don't do that, if you actually say, ah, well, it's not 100%, so I I don't really want to do it because you know what, screw this, I don't like masks, they're uncomfortable. What you're really doing is is just giving up and not actually making a good decision. You're making a bad decision and putting yourself on the opposite side of the distribution, the side of the distribution that's bad, that a good poker player will do everything in their power to avoid.
1: All right. Um, I was going to ask you one last question about the uh, about the economy, but I don't think I will. Um, we should say though that one of the people that you cite again is Kahneman, saying basically that the stock picking is an illusion. Well, I'll, yeah, I'll do it, do it, do a minute on this anyway. I mean, the other crisis America is facing right now: we have a political crisis, we have a pandemic crisis. Another crisis that we have is the economy. But it seems to me that in some ways, poker doesn't treat really teach you how to deal with the economy so much as it teaches you a little humility about your relationship with things like markets
0: it does but it also teaches you some good strategies so when kahneman analyzed the performance of of traders of hedge funds of people who are portfolio managers of all sorts of financial professionals he realized that they were playing roulette They weren't playing poker, they were gambling. There was really no year to year correlation between how well they did. And they just made decisions to make decisions. They acted to act. One of the people we talked about earlier, Dan Harrington, I'll just say this very briefly, now runs a very successful investment business. And one of the things that he does is only hire people who come from the poker and the backgammon world, because these people understand risk and they don't do that. They are still playing poker. They aren't playing roulette. They understand what's going on. They do have humility, but they also understand risk. And so they don't act just to act. They don't hold on to losers because they don't want to lock in the losses. They don't sell winners because they want to lock in the gains. They don't do that. They actually look probabilistically, they look long-term and they make much better financial decisions.
1: All right. So, you know, the book ends partly with you having, you know, kind of a scary health experience. Uh, and that somehow or other, and the the book begins with also you mentioning that you were having a very difficult to understand uh, health experience, and all other things were going wrong. You're wondering, are you just kind of at the mercy of fate? So, what's the difference between the beginning and the end for you? I mean, you you have a set of symptoms which may have been <laughs> brought on by playing poker, which is kind of funny, but um, but they're really scary too. So, so what have you learned by the end?
0: I reacted completely differently at the end than I had at the beginning of the book. At the beginning, I had just kind of seen all of this stuff as happening to me and myself as just helpless and, you know, here I am and I'm why Why me? Why is all of this happening? At the end, the single scariest thing that has ever happened to me in my life happens and I somehow manage to stay calm. I somehow manage to stay in control and to communicate to my husband, who happens to be with me, what is happening and what he needs to do in case um, I'm no longer able to communicate. And that knowledge came from poker, that ability to calm myself down, to manage my emotional response, and to say, okay, I don't know what's happening. This is really frightening. But what I need to do is control what I can to the best of my abilities. And what I can control includes my emotional reaction, includes how I'm thinking about this and how I'm responding. And so it's a very, very different me who goes through that crisis at the end of the book.
1: Well, Maria Konnikova, COVID. it's possibly the ultimate compliment that I can pay to you uh, because I'm going through a thing right now. I uh, put down the book and ordered a poker set from Amazon today. Uh, so uh, that's, that's, uh, that's what I took away. Maria Konnikova is the author of The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. Uh, we've been so lucky to have her on today. Hey, Maria, thank you.
0: Thank you so much for uh, Colin. It's been an absolute pleasure as always.
1: All right. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening today.